being able to read an animal, it is interesting. They're always telling you what they're thinking. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a love for all things animal. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, rescues, and rehab facilities. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, volunteers, anyone who is as passionate about animals as I am. Join me on my Ross Safari. Hi. Hello. Hey, now. Welcome back to the podcast that uses operant conditioning to make sure you keep listening, the Rossafari Podcast. How's that work, you ask? Well, you listen, and I reward you with great guests, bad puns, awesome animals, and amazing poop stories, poop story. which reinforces your listening behavior. Science! Seriously, though, if you've listened to the podcast before today... And if you haven't, welcome. Go hit subscribe and catch up on the back episodes. There is a lot of good stuff there. You'll notice that a lot of people talk about operant conditioning when we discuss animal training. One thing that has stood out to me is that some of the keepers who mention it the most are people who work with birds. Danny Poirier-Larsen, Robin Sullivan, Helen Deshaw, all bird-centric people who just happen to love talking about operant conditioning. I found myself wondering why that is briefly before realizing the obvious answer. Their animals can actually often fly away, so it is super important for them to have a really strong recall, powerful motivation, and an incredibly healthy relationship with the people doing their training. That just goes to show how incredibly effective good training can be, and stands as a testament to how amazingly well taken care of Captive animals are when they are at good facilities. Further proof of the awesomeness of zoos, aquariums, and the amazing people that work there. And that brings us to today's episode. We are again talking about birds, and we go deep into operant conditioning because I am talking to Kathy Schlott, the Curator of Behavioral Management and Animal Programs at the National Aviary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The National Aviary is one of only two bird zoos in the country, with the other being in Salt Lake City, Utah. And it is awesome. There are multiple free flight rooms where you get to be in with the birds. There are also many exhibits behind glass, but the design is such that you are still able to be only inches away from some of the animals, and the ability to see so many incredible species up close is awesome. They also do a really impressive and educational bird show, which you'll hear a lot about in this episode. When I first arrived to the aviary, I got to see the show, and then I met up with Molly Toth, the communications and content specialist at the aviary, and Kathy. Molly and Kathy let me meet a Eurasian eagle owl and then took me on a tour of the aviary, and they were just the most gracious hosts. And y'all, that owl, pumpkin, oh, I am in love. Anyway, walking around and hearing the stories of so many incredible birds made for an excellent afternoon, and I'm already so excited to visit again the next time I am in Pittsburgh. It's so obvious to me that every single person that works or volunteers at the aviary are incredibly knowledgeable, and their, their passion is just, it's, it's infectious. After the tour, we sat down for the great interview you're about to hear. Before we get to that, though, remember that I have Safari podcast stickers available. You can find a post on both Instagram and Facebook, at Safari that has details on how to buy them. They're selling super well, so make sure you get your order in before the first batch is gone. And also, um, hey, don't forget that Patreon that I've got where you can support the show. Uh, it's patreon.com slash Safari, and you get some cool bonus stuff in exchange for um, helping me keep this podcast going. Finally, before we get to the interview, I just wanted to take a minute to say thank you to my buddy Taylor Gray. You've been hearing Taylor all over this podcast lately. He is all of the voices behind the interrupting John acapella tune. He's the background vocalist on the Poop Story theme. Poop Story! He and I did the production and arranging on the song Anthem that was featured in my most recent bonus episode, and between us, we played most of the instrumental tracks on it. And last week, Taylor created a new custom EQ for my voice on the podcast. 
So, if you've noticed that my voice sounds a lot smoother, a little easier on the ears, and, for those that know me, a little more natural, well, I have Taylor to thank for that. I'll put his info in the show notes, but for anyone looking for a pianist, guitarist, bass player, singer, arranger, and producer, I cannot recommend Taylor enough. But enough about him, let's get back to the birds. So, without further ado, I bring you my interview with Kathy Schlott of the National Aviator. All right, so tell me who you are, where we are, and what you do here. I am Kathy Schlott. We are at the National Aviary in Pittsburgh. A lot of people don't know that the National Aviary is indeed found in Pittsburgh and not in Washington. And I am the Curator of Behavioral Management and Animal Programs here. That is a lot of words. What does that mean? Yes, that big title means that I am in charge of the training program for all the animals throughout the National Aviary. I manage our ambassador animal collection, as well as I manage the trainers that work with the ambassador animals. Right. Very cool. So um, what got you into birds? This is going to be a surprising story because I work at the National Aviary with tons of birds, but it wasn't until college that I was interested in birds. Wow. All right. Yes. I did an internship at a wildlife rehabilitation center, and it was when a new wildlife rehabilitator was taking over. So when I was there, I was learning from her and it was kind of like the right place, right time where she taught me to do like everything. I was able to fill for fractures, uh, deliver medications. I ended up staying there for an entire year and helped run the center on Mondays to cover it. Because a lot of wildlife centers are very small nonprofits and you know, they don't have a lot of resources. And so when I was at the wildlife rehabilitation center, all of these amazing birds were coming in. You would have your normal raccoons and your normal mammals, opossums, things like that. But those hawks that were coming in, the great horned owls, the barred owls, I would just became fascinated with them. And then raising a lot of baby bird season, a lot of people are finding baby birds, take them into the wildlife centers. And then I got to raise so many birds, <laughs> so, so many birds. And oh, so well, well, it's like bunnies and squirrels and things, but the birds, I don't know, just being able to raise them and watch them grow and then release them back into the wild really had a profound effect on me. I believe it. That's incredible. And um, funny, true story. I have now interviewed, oh, I don't know, 10 people maybe who are um, what you would call just bird people who, you know, birds are their, their, their main love. None of them, none of them started off as bird people. Really? Not one. I have yet to meet a professional. I know they're out there, but I've yet to meet <laughs> a professional bird person or a bird lover who was like, yes, I was two years old and I thought that the birds were the coolest thing I've ever seen. Nope. It never, it's always, hmm. I am a mammal person. I loved mammals. And then I met some birds and fell in love. And that's also my story. As I was telling you earlier, I, uh, when I started this podcast, my main concern was that you can't just do episodes about red pandas. Um, so eventually I was going to have to do some bird episodes and some uh, primate episodes. That was the other thing that I was like, meh about. <laughs> and I have now done both and fallen so in love. And birds especially, just some of my favorite individual animals are birds now. It's, it's, it's amazing. It is. It's incredible. Once I started learning about them, and then there's a whole world right in your backyard that you didn't even bother to pay attention to. And then once you're excited, oh my gosh, then right, everybody has to be excited and then you have to educate the world and yep, that's why I'm here. A hundred percent. I think I have posted more birds on my Ross Safari Instagram account this year already than I did last year. Um, just because I love them so much now as I've gotten to know them and meet them and fall in love. And that's amazing. It's so cool. Birds are awesome. They all have different personalities. Even it doesn't matter if it's the same species vultures like we have a flock of vultures and every vulture has a different personality a different way of learning a different way of interacting it's just amazing to be around them and to learn their personalities and it's it's an honor that is so cool so let's talk about how you got here tell me about your journey so i wanted to do something with animals which i know is typical so then you go to college but i was so worried because everyone kept telling me you're never going to get a zoo job because it's very hard to get into our field as everyone knows so i went to school at um pit for biology because i figured if i go to school for biology 
I can do anything <laughs> and, and I won't be locked into the zoo world. Right, right. But then I did my internships. Like I said, I did an internship at a wildlife rehabilitation center. And then, of course, you have to do an internship at a zoo to get a job in a zoo. So I did an internship actually with the education department here at the National Aviary because I had background in um, husbandry and I did all those other things. So I wanted to make sure I was really well-rounded to be able to get into a zoo. And I was really lucky because I did my internship 18 years ago, actually, this year in January. And they liked me so much that I got a part-time position. And then they hired me full-time on March 6th. So two days from now will be my <laughs> 18-year anniversary. That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Congratulations on that. Um, that's Yeah, it's hard to stay in one place, I think, in this field when you're first starting out. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. And, you know, I never meant to stay in Pittsburgh. Honestly, I was like, oh, I want to, because I hate the cold. I want to go live where it's warm and everything. But the National Aviary is here. And I love my job. And the aviary has grown so much over the years. But one of my favorite things is that we're never stuck in the same place. We, I'm able to grow here and the aviary grows and we're always looking to do improvements and, and work on and to look for the next, the future thing and to everything about it. We're always looking, how can we improve husbandry? How can we improve enrichment? How can we improve training? Like we are always forward thinkers. And I love the fact that we're forward thinkers. And that is why I have stayed so long in the same place because it's never the same. We're always looking to improve our practices. We're never waiting that, oh, it's just good enough. And that's an amazing place. I mean, it's just an amazing place to be. So that's why I've been here for so long. That is cool. And yes, I, I have to say, I'll, I'll, I'm sure I will have already said more of this in the intro, but this place is crazy cool. Um, I am so impressed with the facility here. Uh, I'm impressed. We'll talk more about the work you're doing and everything, of course. Yeah. But even just one of the things that I noticed is the attention to detail of how the rooms are designed, how the pathways are designed, how it's all education-based, how the music here is incredible and not cheesy and and good, you know, licensed music that sets the tone and isn't so many facilities have such, I mean, I'm a musician, obviously I care yes. about this a lot, yes. but you could tell the detail that goes into the thought and, um, or the thoughts that go into the detail. Well, one of those. And, um, and, you know, you guys, you have your uh, your Amazon Bird Show, and it's so focused on education and conservation. And, yeah, I'm, I'm really blown away by this place. Um, I didn't know what I was coming to. It's my first time here. And a lot of times, uh, you know, I like to go in blind and, and be educated and, and learn about a place. And uh, I'm really impressed. I'm loving my Thank time you. here. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, we work really hard on doing all of those things. We want to create these beautiful natural exhibits, and then we want to invite people into the space to really experience what the animals are experiencing. And I, the shows are one of my favorites <laughs> to be able to do. And we do. We spend a year just planning those shows because, like you were saying, there's an art theater. I mean, we are lucky enough to have a theater dedicated to a free flight bird show too, which I know a lot of places don't have. Right. We have the capability of having the music, the sound. We actually have professional lighting in there as well. And that is something though, that we have a contractor that comes in because as a bird trainer, I do not know how to set up professional lighting. I know that's shocking. <laughs> it kind of is. It seems like most keepers learn to do everything at oh, some yeah. point. <laughs> but that one is above my level. Fair, fair. So <laughs> we think about what educational component and what messaging and what we want to get out to our audience. And then we really build the show based on the bird's natural behaviors. And it's just, it's a lot of work building it and then getting the video and the content and putting it all together. But it's, it's very rewarding. So it's so much fun to do. That's awesome. Yeah. You could, you could tell that it was a, it was a very well done production um, all around, not just, you know, the animals, although they're still the stars. They, oh, yeah. Of course. I always think that they're the stars. I'm always like, I'm just the help. They're the ones that. <laughs> <laughs> I got buzzed so many times during that show. It was awesome. I was in like the perfect seat. They were, they were constantly flying right over my head. It was, it was awesome. It's time for Interrupting. 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 Interrupting, Interrupting John. Okay, so I feel like this one probably goes without saying, but just in case, when I say I got buzzed at the show at the National Aviary, I don't mean that I got 
drunk or stoned. I mean that they have free flight birds that are really good at flying really close to your head or shoulders or whatever, and you can kind of feel the air whip right past you. And uh, many, many birds did that to me while I was completely sober, probably. No, no, of course I was. Of course I was. Unlike the dumb jokes I make, including this one right now, I, uh, I take my interviews very seriously. And with that said, okay, back to that interview. Talk to me a little bit about, um, tell me about some of the birds here. What's your favorite species here? Uh, I'm, it's, I have so many favorites of species, but I really love our hooded vultures. I'm definitely a vulture person, too. Nice, nice. <laughs> What is it about them as a species that, that stands out to you? Well, the hooded vultures are incredibly intelligent. So working with them on a daily basis, we have a flock of hooded vultures. We have five males and two females. And they are critically endangered in the wild. So they're very important for the SSP programs and everything. But I've always loved the vultures. I love their intelligence. I love their personalities. Like when we're doing different trainings with them, they'll kind of like strut and they'll follow you kind of like their little puppy dogs. People just don't get it. <laughs> when you make enrichment for them, they always figure it out. But watching them figure it out, oh my gosh, you'll make the same enrichment for a different animal. And the vultures always have them beat. So I always, <laughs> people underestimate them and they're just so amazing and have such great personalities but right now the hooded vultures are really i don't it really hit home with their sto conservation stories too because when i started working with hooded vultures they were of least concern and now they're critically endangered oh that's, yes that's a journey that's a quick time to get to that point isn't it and even though you educate people and you tell people about this stuff like all the time it was really personal when that happened because i work with them and it took us um, a long time with, there's a lot of male hooded vultures in the country. And so we've been looking for females to be part of the breeding program. And we've, uh, in the past years, have gotten two in. So we're able to help bring the hooded vultures back and to keep sustainable populations and everything. We've sent people over to Africa to work with Volpro. And so, but yeah, I love my hooded vultures and I really want to help the plight of the hooded vultures as much as we can too. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, tell me, tell me what happened with with them. Why why did they go from least concerned to critically endangered so quickly? So there is an anti-inflammatory drug called diclofenac, and it's very cheap. And people will put it in their cattle and their livestock, and then you know you leave your livestock out when they die, and then the vultures would come down and eat it. But for vultures in the old world, vultures it is deadly. So it is wiping out massive amounts of vultures. So it's not just the hooded vultures that have dropped, but a lot of other old world vulture populations plummeted by 99.9%. And the, yes. And the thing is, because they're not what I think they're pretty, but they're not traditionally beautiful. Right, right. People don't put it, not everyone is as willing to fund and put in the conservation efforts to help the hooded vultures because people don't under, or the vultures in general over there, because people don't understand how important vultures are to their ecosystems. And there are dedicated groups over in Africa and the Middle East that are working on helping bringing the vultures back, which is amazing. But yes, um, there's a lot of politics that go into when you're trying to ban a drug and it's just, there's a lot. And then there's the normal problems that vultures face, like power lines, how their power lines are set up there. If the vultures will land on them, they're electrocuted a lot. There's a lot of those other problems, but that the rescue centers were dealing with already. And now you have the whole diclofenac, which is actually kind of an interesting story. One time I... I don't know. I was ill and I went to giant, my doctor called me in medicine and I went to giant Eagle to pick up my anti-inflammatory and it was diclofenac. And I know it's fine for me to eat because I'm not going to go die in a vulture enclosure, right. but I accidentally freaked out and flung it. Like, because oh, no. it's like, I was never like within hand distance of this drug that right, I, you right. know, yeah. and like the poor pharmacist just looked at me like I was crazy because <laughs> I picked it up and I literally went, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's just like, yeah, it was just a weird moment. <laughs> no, yeah, that's uh, that's really funny. That's what a what a rough story, though, man. Um, yes, and so uh, we just want again to 
We have hooded vultures in upcoming programs. And when people see them, and we've used them over the years, but uh, we have this free flight bird show that we do on the roof here. And we're going to bring it back, but we have to wait for COVID restrictions to lift because it's a small space and we can only have uh, 50 people up there. And we fly the hooded vultures in a flock and we have them and they walk around with us and do and we get them really, we get the people immersed with the vultures and everything. And uh, so many people after that experience tell me that they've never like experienced vultures like that. And now they see them in a different light because they're like, oh my gosh, you're so like, they just walking around and strutting and they're following you around and they're just so cool. And so the more people that I can get interested, the more help that we can give those people to bring the vultures back. Yeah, no, obviously that's, that's very cool. That makes, uh, that makes a lot of sense. And that's something that the aviary is set up to do really well. Um, whether they're the free, uh, open, you know, areas or even just the way you have some of the enclosures, you can get up really close to the animals here. I, as soon as we got here, the first thing we went to see were the Andean condors and I lost my mind. Um, we were inches from them. There, there's glass, yes. but we were inches from them. I, I'm tingling again, thinking about it. That's amazing. Um, talk to me, uh, uh about your, your Andean condors. Uh, we have a pair of Andean condors, Lorch and Liani, and then we have another Andean condor named Precious. And Lorch and Liani are part of the SSP program for Andean condors. They're a breeding pair. And I know of at least one chick in my time here at the National Aviary that one of the chicks went back down to um, the Andes Mountains. And we do a lot of conservation work with um, the South America and Andean condors in Ecuador and things like that as well. And the Andean condors too, like... You'll see the habitats um, spacious and well that the condors can move away from people and everything. But we do a lot of opera conditioning training with our animals. Always they have choice and control over their environments. But using positive reinforcement, they all have a really good relationship with people. And so we're able to bring them close. And they're naturally just curious now about people because they have such good experiences that we're able to create these awesome immersive experiences. And that's what I love. Oh, yeah, that was amazing. I We were hanging out and they just came right over yeah and there they there were some displays of um i don't know mating displays i guess the there was the big, a lot of mating yeah. displays yes yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um and i've i've never seen anything quite like that i i felt like the glass wasn't even there um it was yeah no it was really incredible but like you said you you mentioned it then too they they have an indoor area they could have gone completely away they didn't want me taking pictures fine they could have left and that's that's very cool um yeah so it seems like you know, normally what I like to do is talk about animals in an area, um, like in the, the facility and then talk about conservation, mm -hmm. but this is such a conservation focused area or place that I want to, um, keep bouncing, I think between the two. So talk to me about that with, with Andy and Condors, how do you release a chick into the wild? And like, how, how do you, um, I know that you guys don't personally like go down and release them, but how do you raise a chick? How do you decide that it can go out into the wild? How does all of that happen? So Liani is a really good mom. And so when you're going to release an animal back into the wild, uh, the easiest if you can do it thing is to let the parents raise it and teach them what they're supposed to do. Then there is an intermediate place like for Guam rails. We have hatched over 80 Guam rails and have sent over 45 Guam rail chicks to be released back into the wild. And so then they sent them to an intermediate place like Usually they have some places have them in the actual areas and then some places have one that's like before the plane ride to the actual area. But you want to make sure that they're able to like find food on their own and they know that what they're supposed to be able to do to be able to survive in the wild. And then usually the different conservation areas, like I said, they have the intermediate place before they get actually released. And one of the things about the National Aviary that a lot of people don't know even though we're a smaller zoo, we actually have a conservation department here. And not a lot of places our size have their own conservation department. So we have uh, Dr. Lada and um, uh, Bob Malvahill work in our conservation department. And Dr. Lada will travel the globe working on different conservation projects like this. And so he'll go down to South America. Um, he does a lot of, I don't know all of his, I can't speak to all of his work <laughs> because he does a lot, sure, sure. but yes, uh, I know he's, we've done work on the Dominican Republic. He's done work all over the world, you know, but he does a lot of the conservation work for the National Aviary. So 
Very cool. And you just you just mentioned another species that uh, that's having some plight, and that that you guys are helping with the reintroduction of, uh, which are some of your, your the Guam species, right? Yes. So so let let's talk about that. Tell me a little bit about um, what what caused their their problems in the wild, and and what's being done to to help. So the brown tree snake was accidentally introduced on the island of Guam. And so it's been eating um, all, all the bird species. And it's just been having such profound effect on the island that a lot of animals are now critically endangered because of it, such as the Guam rail and the Guam kingfishers. And so they um, have actually found another island near Guam called Rhoda that didn't have any brown tree snakes on it. And it's similar set up to Guam. So they've been working on bringing these animals back from extinction out into the wild by introducing them back onto that island. And late 2019, they delisted the Guam rails from extinct into the wild to critically endangered. Nice. And I cannot tell you, but to work and we've released more Guam rails than any other zoo in North America. And so to be a part of that, I mean, is pretty amazing. I, it's indescribable. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. That's that's incredible. I mean, I know just just getting to see those species here was like you you were extinct. <laughs> I know. I know it's just it's in the crazy. wild, but like that's still so crazy to think about. Um, that was that was a very big highlight, and they're not you know the, the prettiest birds here or anything. There <laughs> no. there are plenty of of uh, creatures here that are that can distract you visually from them, but you're seeing something that's so unique and rare, and yeah, it's uh, that was very cool. Yeah, it's yeah. very cool here. Um, that's awesome. So your focus here is on training. Yes, that's the focus of my job. Right. Okay. So let's talk about that. Talk to me about how, how you train and, and enrich these animals' lives. <laughs> that's such a big question. Oh, I know. Well, I this know, is a big it's, discussion. Topic. It's a long podcast, so we're good. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Um, so we use traditional, we use operant conditioning techniques. And can you explain what that means to my audience? So operant conditioning was actually developed by B.F. Skinner. Yes. <laughs> Basically, you have reinforcement and you have punishment. And so there's a nice, beautiful square that when I'm talking about this in programs that I use to de define it, but you have positive reinforcement, positive punishment, and negative reinforcement and negative punishment. And so positive reinforcement is the one that most people are familiar with. So positive reinforcement is adding treats or giving them different fun things they like. If you're training a dog and they have a favorite toy, you know, throwing that favorite toy after they do a behavior that you want. So we focus here on positive reinforcement. And then you have positive punishment. And I know in a lot of other fields, positive punishment is used a lot, not in bird training because our birds, you know, fly away. But, <laughs> you know, there's been a lot of controversy with a lot of mammals. It's usually mammals with um, positive punishment because when you use punishment, you're decreasing the likelihood that a behavior is going to reoccur. So positive punishment is adding something into the environment to decrease the likelihood of a behavior reoccurring. And negative punishment is removing something from the, um, removing something that decreases the likelihood that a behavior is going to reoccur. So people have used punishment in the past and it is effective, but you don't want to use punishment because there's a whole lot of nasty side effects that go along with punishment. Your animal is going to become apathetic. And it's going to become disinterested. Plus, if you think about it, what that animal is going to do, it's just going to give you whatever you want, not so it's not punished. You know, it's not free thinking. It's not, uh, you're not encouraging different behaviors. You're actually discouraging them because it's just like us. If I punish my husband all the time, <laughs> we'll just use that as an example. Yeah, that works, yeah. <laughs> then he's literally going to do the bare minimum with me to deal with me. And then he's going to run away. Right. 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 Um, so also when you live in a world where you're punished all the time, you're just, you know, you don't want to do anything because why are you going to do anything when you get punished all the time? You know, and then there's fear and fear related behaviors. You can like pace and just I don't know, chew on your nails and do different things. And then there's aggression. If you punish something all the time, then it's, 
when it sees you, its hackles are going up. Like it's going to want to be aggressive towards you because it knows that you're just a big meanie, you know? So you really, the, there's so many That's reasons. the scientific term, I think, yes, is big, big meanie. meanie. Yeah, yeah. So there's a whole lot of reasons why you want to stay away from punishment. When you use positive reinforcement training, it's the opposite. Like the animals are excited to participate. People are excited to participate. You know, this isn't just for animals. Well, we're animals too. But when you use positive reinforcement, they are always looking for, oh, if I do this, what am I going to get? You know, it's exciting. It's enriching. You become something that's the bringer of the good stuff. So your relationships are going to be um, really good. And I did I don't know why I did this, but for a little while, while I was here working as a bird trainer, I wanted to see what it was like to train people to train their dogs. I thought that it could make me an even better trainer if I did like some part-time dog training, because then you're taking people who have no training background whatsoever, right? And then you have to teach them how to train an animal. So I was like, well, this, this is a new challenge for me. This will be cool. So I did that for like two years after work at night, um, a couple of days a week. Jeez. I'm very, I, I always fill my plate. So I'm always <laughs> busy until I'm, yeah, crazy. But, um, and it's just interesting because, you know, in the dog training world, I had a lot of clients that were used to using punishment and just changing their whole mindset into positive reinforcement. It was a really good learning experience and I'm really glad I did it. And actually it was funny. One of my clients tracked me down because I told them I worked here one time he was an older gentleman and he called the aviary to tell me that his dog got off his leash and was running away. And he was convinced that my method and my recall wasn't going to be successful. And it worked. And he (laughs) tracked me down and called me here to tell me that. And I was like, excellent. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. Oh, very cool. Very cool. Um, can you provide an example of positive punishment? I know that we, we aren't focused on punishment, but I can't short of, um, you know, I I can't, I can't really think of like that. That doesn't make sense to my brain. Positive punishment. So your dog's crying in a corner and you throw a shoe at it. Introducing so positive doesn't mean good. No, positive means introducing. It means what you yes. said. Introducing an item. Okay. So okay. that's because when you said throwing a shoe at a dog is positive, I was like, um. <laughs> but yeah. No, so in sense. the training world, it's true that it's one of my pet peeves. In the training world, when you say positive, it doesn't mean good or bad. It means adding something, and right. negative means removing something. Okay. So it's the addition or the removal of something into the environment interesting all right that makes a lot of sense very cool thank you for that i appreciate it but yes but no no punishment yay yay um yeah okay cool 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 but you can never say no punishment because as a trainer you can accidentally use it and not even know you're doing it how so so if you have an animal and this is when people say they only ever use positive reinforcement it's always a red flag to me because sometimes you accidentally use it and you don't know it so do we want to use it no but you could accidentally. So I'm a stickler when it comes to my training because I never want that to happen, right? But say you have an animal and it's feeling comfortable, but you accidentally walk too close and it like backs up from you and like, or it cowers a little bit, you just accidentally punish. <laughs> Interesting, right, right? Right. See, so like, even though you always want to focus on positive reinforcement, there you could accidentally be doing something that makes it uncomfortable that you don't realize you're doing. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. <laughs> all right. So all of, I analyze, all, and as an animal trainer, you're supposed to, but that's, I watch behavior constantly in my life. It's really weird now, but you're picking up on that body language and you're picking up on um, just what animals are telling you all the time just by watching and reading their body language. And once you're, if you really understand training and you're a good trainer, the, it's the same principle for anything in the world. The difference, though, is that you just have to learn that individual animal's body language and how to read their behavior. So, um, for instance, my daughter just got introduced to horseback riding. And now I'm like, oh, this is a species that I don't know how to read. (laughs) So now as a training nerd, I'm like going to try to find all these books on horse body language because I have to know. I don't know and I have to know now. (laughs) Being able to read an animal, it is interesting. They're always telling you what they're thinking. You just have to be sensitive enough to pick it up. That's like 
what I'm always telling my trainers and myself, you know, like you just have to be sensitive. It's, and it can be subtle. Like when you have a falcon on your glove or an eagle on your glove, it could be subtle as a shift in weight, you know, simple little things that show you what it's thinking that you have to be paying attention to pick it up. Yeah. Makes sense. I, um, I get to meet a lot of animals doing, doing this as, as I've mentioned. And, um, I, I try to to do that. I try to, as I'm I'm interacting, watch them just to make sure. I mean, I know that keepers are watching and, <laughs> and they know what's up and they will fix any behavior or, or anything that I'm doing wrong or anything. Um, but I always try to kind of read it myself. Like today, uh, you guys were awesome and let, let me let me hold an owl. And um, I, the whole time I was just analyzing, oh, you're moving this way. Oh, what does this mean? Oh, if I move my arm this way, does it help? Does it hurt? Do you, oh, are you, you cool? Like the whole time, just in case. Animals are just such cool communicators. They are. Yeah. And I think we could learn a lot, you know, as a species um, by realizing that it's important to actually analyze how individuals communicate because humans don't oftentimes pay attention to the nonverbal cues that we're giving each other. That is for sure. And I think you have to learn that with animals because we don't have a language. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I think that's I think that's really important. That is true. If we'd be more sensitive to each other, then we'd have more positive interactions. Yeah, I think so. hundred um, percent. So tell me more about your training program. So we have an extensive training program here at the National Aviary. We do a lot of um, training with our ambassador animals, do free flight, uh, train them to go to different classrooms and a new and when the world opens back up, of course, yes, we go to outreaches in schools and do lots of different um, activities with people. So those are all ambassador animal trainings. We want them to all volunteer for everything. Our policy here with our animals is that they get choice and control over their environments. So they can choose to participate. We ask them to go into their travel carriers. If they say no, guess what? We say that's fine. And we back off and we don't make them go and do anything that they don't want to do. Even our sloths, our two-toed sloths, we have um, two, well, we have three Linnaeus's two-toed sloths here at the National Aviary. We have one that lives in our tropical rainforest, and then we have two that are ambassador animals. And so it was really important to us to be able to have really clear criteria for the sloths for them to choose whether they wanted to participate or not. That's just a really good example of this. So we have their travel carrier we'll put up to their habitat and they will choose to climb in or they'll choose not to. So when they choose to climb in, then we'll shut the door and then we'll go to the area that we're going to take them. They also have, we have a sloth encounter here that people can come meet a sloth. They can touch the sloth two toed on or two fingers, two toes. <laughs> <laughs> you can use your two sloth fingers. You can use your two sloth fingers, fingers for yes. a two-toed. And <laughs> yes. for the three-toed, you can use three fingers. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's perfect. And then we, you can touch their backs and you can feed them a julienne sweet potato stick. And on our perch, we even have it where our sloths climb out of their travel carrier onto their perch. We have a branch that's the designated, if you go on this branch, you know that the guests are going to touch your back and feed you your sticks. If you choose to not participate, like if someone touches you too hard or whatever, and you would like to not have that happen anymore, the sloths are free to climb anywhere else. They have other perches. That is their clear signal to us that, nope, we would not like to be touched now. And then we honor that. We don't touch them. We let them hang out, climb around when they do want to. They go on their perch. And then we have them climb back into their travel carrier when they're done and we put them home. So we have very easy to read criteria that we have set up so we have clear communication between our sloths and our trainers. And our armadillos are the same. So when we have our armadillos, we have them trained to go into a travel carrier on their own. And then they will go out and we have a different... um, Places for them to run around and be armadillos and showcase them (laughs) and everything, too. But we don't actually ever pick them up. We even train them to do voluntary nail trims by stationing on a spot. And then we can touch their feet while they're fully just out sitting there. And again, they can leave their station. And that signals us that they're done. So we do all the sorts of training to be able to give the animals. For the birds, they fly to us. It's a little easier. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. You stay on your perch or you fly over to us and then you choose to go out. (laughs) It's very clear. (laughs) So I'm curious, how the heck do you train a sloth that this branch 
means, you know, you're getting touched and you're getting stuff. And all the other branches mean you're safe. How, how do you go through that? That's incredible. Well, it's just lots of repetition. And so we just train them to when they go to the branch that this is what's going to happen. And even when they are on that branch, we still make sure that they're as comfortable as humanly possible right, or softly possible. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, uh, possible. It's lots of repetition and um, just making sure that they're in an ideal situation before we bring people in. So when we're training things, we'll train it. We think we have it trained. We'll ask office staff that we can yell at if they do the wrong thing to come in (laughs) and to practice first. And then after it makes it through the office staff testing, then we'll bring in the public and do it with them. Nice. Very cool. All right. Must be fun to be office staff at at a place like this then. Yes. Sometimes I'm their favorite person. Like, so you're at your desk, but wouldn't you rather be touching a slot? <laughs> <laughs> Molly, the PR person who's involved with all of this, just got really big eyes and gave me a thumbs up when I said that. So that's appreciated. Thank you for your contribution to the episode. <laughs> I got another thumbs up. Uh, <laughs> very cool. Um, that's that's all really fascinating. So is that your whole day pretty much? Do you just work on the training stuff with all of the birds or? Oh, I wish. (laughs) So no, as being curator, I get to do all the fun stuff, like also have meetings and do the paperwork and schedules and budgets and all that fun stuff that no one wants to do. Well, what exactly does the title curator mean? I hear it a lot, but, but for my listeners, what is a curator? So a curator is generally someone that is in charge of, I want to say it depends on the zoo, but it's generally in charge of an area. Or so, yeah, I mean, usually curators are in charge of like areas or different programs. So like as being a curator, I'm in charge of the ambassador animal curator and the training program. So but that comes with a lot of paperwork kind of stuff, too, because when you're you have to organize everything, you have to um, people have to give you training plans before we start a program. You have to meet with them, make sure that they have everything that they need. So for me, honestly, when I think of myself as a curator, I also think of myself as a person that needs to set up my staff for success. Like I'm the one that provides the resources for my staff to do their jobs. Just like I'm the one that helps the animals be the star. I'm the one that has to do that kind of nitty gritty stuff. So that way I can free up my staff to do their jobs. So if someone has a training port, <laughs> I'm an easy boss with this though, too. If, um, <laughs> You have a fun training plan and you want to do it, but you need these resources to do it. Well, it's my job to make sure that I can find that stuff and give them their resources to do their training program. I also, when you're an animal ambassador, manager, curator, you there's more to just training too. There's like the enrichment side of it, making sure that you have all those enrichment um, supplies and schedules done. We have another curator that... Um, is in charge of like all the enrichment calendars and everything like that too. But it's also just making sure that like all you have the best husbandry going and if things need repurched or if you need any supplies or just making sure like all of those things happen. So the training part, I mean, I love my job in general, but like, yes, the training is the fun part or highlight. You get to go work one-on-one with the animals. Or sometimes I also, my job is to train trainers to train. So working with the staff and working with the animals and stuff. But there's like a lot of that other like not so fun stuff that comes along with it. (laughs) But I would not change it for the world. So Very cool. Yeah, I mean... The animals can't do their own uh, paperwork, so it's good that they have somebody doing it for them. I know. And you know what? It's funny because when you become, a lot of people become curators because they work their way up. So on when I have days where I'm helping doing husbandry and stuff like that, too, like, I don't mind that at all. Sometimes you'd rather clean, like, cleaning poop is second nature to you, right? Right. So, right. you know, sometimes it's more reinforcing when you're watching that poop running away, then you're like, oh, I got to go work on that paper. <laughs> Yeah, I would choose cleaning poop over uh, Excel any day. Yeah. Any day. Yeah, yeah. But my favorite part of my job, too, is watching the animals and the trainers when they have those aha moments. Because that is oh, training. You have so many when those animals are like, aha, I figured out what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> and they get all those, you know, attention and treats and everything. And when you have um, trainers, too, that are working really hard on a really technical behavior and they figure out what it is, and they have that success too. There's nothing that feeling that of that success that you have those aha moments. Oh, they're so great. Tell me a story. Oh, of some aha moments. Yeah, 
or you know whatever read me a dr seuss book i don't care no, no. yes tell me tell me an aha moment story tell you an aha moment story so for us we were training i'll talk about my uh, one of my lanner falcons so we have lanner falcons here at the national aviary and two of them are trained to do a lure flying behavior and so it's um they you have a a lure, which is, it can be like a leather pouch. It has some feathers in it and stuff like that. But the key is that you train the birds to know that there's food associated with it and attached to it. And so they will go and they will chase the lure. So you'll start training it by introducing the lure, putting tidbits of food on it. They'll eat off the lure. So then they start associating the lure with food. And they will... Then you start like picking up the lure and dangling the lure. And I know I have to use my hands to explain it, but I can't do it if I'm not like visually, even though no one can see me. It's okay. It. I'm Italian. I do it all the time. <laughs> so then you have the lure out to your side and you dangling it. And then the bird flies and just grabs it and it goes to the ground and eats it. And then the bird, you have the bird, um, you have it where the bird's taking off towards it. And you kind of soft lob it up into the air. And then the bird grabs it and takes it down to the ground and eats it. And so you just do small approximations until you're actually like spinning the lure in a circle and the bird is chasing it. <laughs> so it's a, I love training that behavior though and having the birds free fly and watching when that bird, the moment for that is when the bird does its first turn and then it comes back into the lure. That's that moment where you're like, Ah, it has this. The bird, because, you know, the bird just is going straight, or it's not confused because the lure is moving and it actually has to chase it. That moment when that turn coming back into the lure is amazing. And we actually have one lanner falcon that flunked out of lure flying school. Oh, no. He was like, dude, I am not, that is too much work. He just sat there and stared at me. He's like, I am not, no, I don't care. You know, you just hand me my food on the glove and that is what I will do. He, that bird will do 26 transfers of letting me set him and getting food for sitting on little kids gloves at summer camp. But you ask him to chase a war and he's like, I have my limits. I will not do that. I will not fly, but I will do anything else. <laughs> That's amazing. So the bird sometimes chooses their jobs too. Nice. That's great. Yeah. I always, um, I always kind of have to laugh at the fact that, um, you know, most animal training at zoos and stuff is, is food motivated and you know, y'all aren't going to not feed them. It's you true. wouldn't torture your animals. So if only they figured that out, you might all have the laziest animals. <laughs> I do think that some animals like to be enriched and stuff, obviously, like, yes, to be, you know, it's trained. true. But it is really funny to me sometimes that, you know, I'll talk to a keeper and they're like, well, so we give them half their diet and their training and, you know, make, of course, they get it all at the end anyway. And I'm like, exactly. well, then why train? <laughs> yes. It's that fun. Well, I think also for animals, they know it's natural to work for your food. I mean, we work for our food. Right. Um. I have to say this is the easiest work I've done for my, <laughs> usually, you know, not hauling stuff and everything, but, you know, we all work for our food. And so just, it's a really natural for it not to go in a silver dish. And quite honestly, uh, a lot of zoos are moving away from the silver dish. You know, we want to create these natural experiences for our animals and the silver dish or a black bucket or whatever. You're right, right. It's not the most natural. So having them in different foraging devices or whatever it is that that animal does naturally and trying to supply their food for these other experiences are great. You know, I saw a presentation in Denmark of a tiger that was really obese and was unhealthy. And they made this giant pool like telephone pole and they attached the hunks of meat with like a bungee and then they had the tiger working for that carcass and then they showed like three months later that tiger was muscles i mean she got lost all that fat like that was a good looking tiger it's stuff like that right you know right. that's really cool and it actually might be a lion now that I that's okay <laughs> hey this is the aviary yes, we, we don't need know, to be talking about cats this, probably, whatever cats, yeah. but yes <laughs> That's awesome. it was amazing yes very cool very cool um all right so let's talk more about some of the different species here um what i would love for you to do is is sell my listeners on coming here okay. by talking about a couple of the cool species they're going to see here and telling me about the individual like an individual from the species oh so we have 
one of our fan favorites, everyone's favorite, is the African penguin. So we have a colony of African penguins. And it's just a very immersive exhibit. Um, Post-COVID, we have penguin tunnels that you can pop into and like look, you feel like you're in the exhibit. We have an outdoor area where there are uh, penguins are swimming and everything. And the cool thing is that they're very interactive with you. Like our penguins notes are, are used to being around people. And so they'll come up to the glass and they'll uh, watch people walking by. And it's just, it makes you feel like you're really with those African penguins. We also have experiences where you can be with the African penguins, but just as a general visitor, they're one of the fan favorites. Uh, out of all those, my personal story was with Elvis. Um, Elvis is an awesome African penguin, and I always tease that the penguin chooses the trainer <laughs> because the penguins choose who they like and who they don't like. And Elvis did not like me in the beginning. And I'm like, but Elvis, I want you to like me. Like, it just <laughs> bothered me that Elvis did not like me. I don't know why, but I worked for six years, six years. And <laughs> finally, Elvis would come out and do education classes with me and do programs and doesn't, there's no aggression. He, we are friends now six years but it was, <laughs> but it was worth it <laughs> that's amazing and i not only love that story but i love that uh the bird's name is elvis and you also have a bonded pair which is buddy and holly yeah so we've got a lot of 50s rock vibes going on we um, do which i'm a big fan of and and most of my listeners know is is what i tour the country playing most of the time so uh i am all about that that's very cool um yeah yeah tell me more Okay. And we have amazing free flight exhibits. We have uh, our wetlands of the Americas, tropical forest, grasslands areas. And our grasslands, although they didn't do it today for me, <laughs> <laughs> we have bee eaters and scissor tail flycatchers that did come down. And we do bug tosses in there. And just watching the bee eaters and the flycatchers catching the bugs out of the air and how fast they are and how aerodynamic they are is super cool. I don't know. I mostly saw them sitting on branches looking at you like, what? I'm tired. You I don't know. know. <laughs> Every time where there's like that pressure moment where you're like, come on. <laughs> it's like the parrot. You know, when you bring a parrot out and you really want it to do its vocalizations and then it just sits there and stares at you. But you have six cameras set up with media. Those moments, you know, we've all had those. Moments. Yeah, that sounds right. That sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, we have, for the raptor lovers, because I love birds of prey and raptors, uh, we have our eagles. We have our stellar sea eagle, and we have bald eagles. And then, and they're not raptors, but birds of prey, we have condor court, which we already talked about. But in the summer, we'll have our king vultures back out as well, too. So, I mean, who... I, you need to sell bald, bald eagles. Eagles are amazing. Eagles are very Eagles cool. are amazing. Big of feet. And <laughs> the, the, the stellar sea eagles are uh, amazing. They're just really cool. And they are very interactive. They will come over and check out the guests and stuff like that, too. Yeah. And, yeah. I actually kind of think that bald eagles are, I don't know if it's just because you see them all the time because America or whatever, but they're kind of my least favorite eagle. Like, they're very cool. And don't get me wrong, they're impressive birds. But once I started seeing, like, Golden and Stellar Sea and some of the other eagles out there, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. We have a golden eagle named Autumn. She is an ambassador animal. Nice. And she'll be, um, she's on vacation now, but she'll be back for the summer. And she is a big girl. It, the power in their feet. We have a variety of different size raptor gloves that we wear. And we have our normal ones. But for Dylan and Autumn, we actually had to buy triple the thickness raptor gloves <laughs> And it's, they're not even trying to kill it. Like, you know, like it, they're not even squeezing that hard, right, but right. just them sitting on the glove, like my arm would bruise in my normal glove. So we had to buy uh, triple thickness gloves just because they're such innate, powerful birds, but right. they're amazing. I mean, who doesn't want a golden eagle sitting on their glove, really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back uh, once, yeah. once, once the vacation is over. So, but she's amazing too. That's so cool. And uh, tell me about pumpkin. Oh, pumpkin is a Eurasian eagle owl. And pumpkin is actually was raised here at the National Aviary. So when I started here at the National Aviary, like I said, I worked my way up from intern to full time and then eventually became a curator. But while we were building our ambassador animal program, 
um, to what it is today. And I was looking at acquiring some new bird species to add because we have around 90 ambassador animals right now. And we never used to have that many when I first started. So when we were building up our programming and doing all these things, and I was looking for, you know, traditional things like seriamas or auger buzzards. There's like a whole bunch of like bird show traditional animals. I noticed that some of the birds were harder to acquire. And so then I did some digging and it turned out that a lot of our favorite bird ambassador species are housed singly because we all do it at our different facilities and they're not part of the breeding programs. And then I asked my boss at the time, I'm like, why not? And, you know, everyone, all the research and everyone else at different zoos I contacted at, you know, were like, because that's how it's done. And I never like that. You cannot tell me, well, it's just because it's how it's done or no one's tried that before. Because then, of course, I'm going to be like, well, I want scientific evidence that it can't be done. Right, right. Or I'm going to want to try it. And so um, we had Eurasian eagle owls here that weren't, uh, that, you know, are from different lineage and everything like that. So I asked my boss and it took a while, but we decided that we were going to try to breed Eurasian eagle owls and have them be ambassadors. So it was like a pet project of mine for a long time. I really wanted to try this. Talking, there's another, um, some of my friends that are curators and ambassador animal managers at other zoos believe in this too, that we really want to try to help breed these animals and be a part of these SSP programs and stuff and be ambassador animals. We want to do it all because that's what's best for the animals, right? And so the ambassador, the Eagle Owls was my pet project here. And so I put X and Gandalf together the first year and there was no love there whatsoever. They could care less about each other. So, but I had Dumbledore, Gandalf's brother. So the following breeding year, I know, (laughs) I love my names. I love the names, but I'm also just picturing the nerds that are like, excuse me, Gandalf is not Dumbledore's brother. Oh, okay? you know, that's Those are different series, and um, come on now. <laughs> yes, that is true, but I love them both. No, yeah, those are great names. <laughs> yes. that's, that's awesome. Yeah, so we put X together with um, Dumbledore, and man, there is a love connection. So we uh, have been breeding Eurasian eagle owls um, ever since. So we've actually had 10 chicks here. Ooh, nice. Yes, and so during breeding season, they do their thing. And we have chicks. And then during the rest of the year, they are actually ambassador animals. They come out and do the programs. X is going to do free flight in our next show. Like, it's just, it's working out really well. And so since we've had such great success with the Eurasian eagle owls, like I mentioned earlier with the hooded vultures, we're going to have, um, we have the hooded vulture set up to breed. It's going to be the same thing. We'll have our hooded vulture breeding program, but they'll still be ambassador animals. And we have a couple other species that we're looking to do that with down the road, too. Very cool. Yes. Very cool. I love it. Um, so are there any other individual birds or species that you want to mention on this episode? <laughs> well, of course, there's our Guam rails and Guam kingfishers. In our tropical rainforest room, we also have our hyacinth macaws, which are just gorgeous macaws. Yeah, they are. And our flying foxes. Which are not foxes or birds. <laughs> yes, they're mammals, the Malayan flying foxes. Uh, we have the bat species so we can educate people about um, some other flying, you know, things that live in the trees. <laughs> I love that y'all have three mammal species here and all three have managed to make it onto the podcast now. I- <laughs> <laughs> did we talk about, oh, we did talk about the armadillo. Absolutely we did. That's and the sloths. Funny. Yeah. I did not mean to do that. <laughs> three whole mammal species and all of them made it on. I'm telling you, even at aviaries, people tend to be mammophiles. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is that we have over 150 species of birds. So we need a long podcast <laughs> if we're going to mention all the birds. <laughs> yeah. So um, what would be the thing that, like, you want my listeners to hear? So assuming they've never heard of the National Aviary or that, you know, they've heard of it but have never been here. What is the one thing that you think would like surprise them about about here or about the staff or just just shock, shock my listeners? One of the things that I want people to realize about the aviary is the fact that we are so immersive. Like you can just come in and you can like run through the aviary and be like, yep, I saw some birds. Or <laughs> what you really need to do is look at our daily event schedule. We do a lot of planning for our daily events. We want everyone to come in and really be immersed with the animals. And just the fact that you can go into free flight rooms or you can go up to the Andean condors and really be immersed in the habitats, which 
with the animals and experience these like free flight experiences that we do and experience all of that is super cool. Like you're not going to be able to go to a traditional place and be as immersed as you are. And see, I really like that. I like to go to places where I feel like I'm part of it. And so that's my favorite part. Cool. That's really cool. I love that. So um, are there any conservation organizations that you would like to give a shout out to or tell us about? I know you mentioned Volpro before. Yes. Uh, well, I mean, there's a lot. There's Volpro. Uh, there's Sandcob that is helping with the African penguins in South Africa. We do a lot of work with um, the Sandcob as well. And I mean, they're just very important conservation efforts that are going on there. Okay. How do you get to be the national aviary? In 1952, the Pittsburgh Aviary was established, and it was only one small section of what we are now. Okay. And so it was um, more of a, it was here because there was a conservatory before us, and then they started adding birds, and then we became the Pittsburgh Aviary. So we're owned by the city of Pittsburgh. And then in 1992, the city of Pittsburgh can no longer afford to keep us going, and the Friends of the National Aviary and people got together and we became our own independent nonprofit. And in 1993, they petitioned the president at the time, Bill Clinton. We were at that time the only freestanding aviary that wasn't attached to a zoo. Okay. At that time, I know there's another one now, which is a great place, but at that time, we were the only one of our kind. Right, right. And so we petitioned to Congress for the national designation, and then we were given the national designation. So that is why we are the National Aviary. We are not federally funded, though. We are our own small, um, private-owned nonprofit. Okay, cool. Wow. Yeah. So, like, yeah, this is, it's not just a name. Like, it's not this just is, a name. Is, you had to talk to, to, to Clinton, and you had to go through Congress, and all that cool yep. stuff. Wow. We are the nation's aviary in Pittsburgh. And a lot of people oh, yes. don't realize that we're right here in Pittsburgh, right in your own backyard. Like I said, I have been to this city dozens of times, and I did not know. Uh, I, I did not know, and I'm so excited, and now I know. Um, yeah, very cool, very cool. And then it is time. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari Poop Story. Hit me. So I have a really weird story, but it's actually not at work. But okay. it's work-related because a lot of people don't know that outside of the National Aviary, I'm actually a licensed falconer myself. Okay, and so what does that mean? In the United States, you have to go become a, to become a falconer, which a lot of people want to do because it's cool. Um, you have to go through a licensing process. So you have to find someone to sponsor you, and then you can learn from them and become an apprentice falconer. And so you'll apprentice under them for at least two years, and then you can apply to become a general falconer, and then you're like your own independent falconer at that point. Um, your master falconer has to approve, though, and like sign a letter saying that you can move up to being a general. And then after five years of having your general license, you go on to be a master falconer. Wow. Okay. So falconry, I thought was really cool. I did it because it was, I actually was a bird trainer first, which is backwards for most people I know, but practicing the sport of falconry and going out into the field and being with the birds of prey, the raptors while they're doing it, it, it felt really close to nature and it was the only thing I didn't do with my, like, raptors here, you know, was being out in the actual woods with them, watching them hunting and killing and doing their thing. So I got really interested in it, and I saved up some money because it's expensive to buy all your equipment. So, like, for Christmas and birthday presents and stuff, I'd be asking for raptor equipment and my own Dremel and, you know, my own <laughs> telemetry and all this other stuff instead of normal Christmas presents. But, you know, animal people are weird. So, and then I got all my stuff, and I became a falconer. So I have a raptor mule in my backyard, and I have birds. I usually have red-tailed hawks. Um, I work with a lot of uh, wildlife rehabilitators sometimes to, instead of getting my own bird, I'll get one that, like, ran into a window and needs um, to practice hunting before going back out in the wild sure, and sure. stuff like that. So I do a lot with them. So I have my bird in my backyard, and my neighbor is talking to me, and I was getting ready to go work it. And so I was talking to my neighbor's family <laughs> was over there, you know, spending the day with him and I, and they come out and they're like, Oh, happy to see you and stuff like that. And I walk out and I'm talking to them. And then I had day old chicks in my bait bag 
to be able to give to my bird, but I didn't feel like going back in to grab scissors because I was in a conversation. So I just grabbed the chicks and I start ripping it apart while I'm talking to my neighbor's family. And you should have seen the look of pure horror on their face. And they're like, oh my God, what are you doing? And so I'm like, what? I'm, I'm, cutting, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm getting my food ready for my bird. They're like, you're just ripping it apart. I'm like, wait, this isn't normal, is it? And they're like, no, that is not normal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is such a good story. I love it. Amazing. What's normal to me apparently is not normal to the rest of the world. <laughs> That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this. You're very welcome. It was a lot of fun. Well, there you have it. That was just a lot of fun. I really like birds. That was bir Birds are cool, y'all. They like fly and stuff. Yeah, it was a good time. All right. You can check out the National Aviary on Instagram. They are at national underscore aviary. And you can find them online at aviary.org. All right, y'all. Well, you have completed the behavior that I wanted you to do, which was listening to the whole episode. So here is your tasty morsel at the end of that. My reminder to you that the word credits backwards is, in fact, Steider. Well, that's our show for this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making it. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan Burke and John Rossi. Listen and subscribe on any podcast app. Please take the time to leave a review as it helps other people find our podcast. You can find Rossafari on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Rossafari, on the web at Rossafari.com, or email me directly at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.